Hello, you've tuned in to 90.7 FM KLX Berkeley. I'm Karen Serrano, and this is The Graduates, an interview talk show where we speak to UC Berkeley graduate students about their work on campus and beyond. I'm joined today by Brenna Remick from the Department of Molecular and Cellular Biology. Welcome to the show, Brenna. Thanks. Happy to be here. Yeah, so excited that you're here. Do you want to tell us a little bit about the kind of research you do on campus? Sure, yeah. So I'm finishing up my second year in the molecular and cell biology program, and that's a pretty big, broad program that studies a lot of different types of biology. And so specifically, I'm in a division called immunology and pathogenesis, where we're really interested in studying how the immune system works and how it protects us against infectious disease and also against cancer. So there's a lot of lab studying different aspects of that. And I'm in Russell Vance's lab and he is really interested in studying the interactions between our innate immune system and pathogens. So that's what I've been working on for um, the past year. That's really cool. What kind of immunology are you working on? Yeah, so I... So broadly, I'm interested in, in learning about new ways that our immune system senses the presence of pathogens. And I'm particularly interested in the innate immune system. So this is our body's first line of defense against infectious microorganisms. And the innate immune system is responsible for sensing the presence of a pathogen and um, mediating a response that can help restrict or eliminate the pathogen and also plays a role in, in activating our adaptive immune response. And that's mediated by um, T cells and B cells. So the the central idea that's that's dominated the field of innate immunology for the past few decades has been that we have these sensors that are encoded in our germline and sensors are called pattern recognition receptors and they recognize these these molecules that are on pathogens called pathogen associated molecular patterns so basically when these receptors bind to these pathogen associated molecular patterns then it triggers an immune response mm -hmm. and so so this has been the idea for, for a while now, and a lot of the mechanisms have been figured out on how this works. But I'm interested in kind of understanding more about this other arm of the innate immune response that is distinct but complementary to this, this mode of pathogen sensing. And it's something that has been studied a lot in the field of plant immunology for a while, but not so much in animals. And so I'm interested in studying it, how it works in animals, and basically in this other mode of pathogen recognition, rather than recognizing microbial structures, the immune system can actually recognize the activities of pathogens. And so when a pathogen infects a cell, it translocates these proteins into the cell that are called effectors. And these effectors have a lot of different functions, but mostly they serve to promote infection while also shutting down our host immune responses. So there are certain ways that our immune system can detect the activity of these effector proteins and activate an immune response. And so, like I mentioned, it's it's pretty well established in the field of plant immunology, but a little bit less well understood and less well studied in the field of animal immunology. And so I'm interested in trying to identify new mechanisms by which uh, like a human immune system can detect the activity of pathogens. Yeah, that's really cool. So for my very limited knowledge of like plant immunity, so for plants, they recognize, like what you said, pathogen-associated molecular patterns. They recognize like cell wall fragments. Is that kind of the same deal in humans? Yeah, so similarly, they recognize components of like the bacterial cell wall or 
flagellin that's not a bacteria and then they can also there's also sensors that recognize nucleic acids that are mislocalized or have modifications that are primarily found on like virus or bacteria nucleic acids but not in humans yeah those are all considered pathogen associated molecular patterns neat so it's often the case that we know a lot more about the animal side of things and not the plant side of things. So it's kind of interesting to hear that kind of side of things isn't as fleshed out in the animal world. Are you looking at like a particular effector protein or a particular system? So yes, yeah, so I'm actually doing a screen where I'm I'm focusing on two pathogens, two viruses, and basically what I'm doing is expressing every gene from this virus individually and expressing each gene in macrophages, a human macrophage cell line. And then I'm looking to see if the presence of that virus protein induces or triggers an immune response in these macrophages. Wow, every single protein from a virus. That sounds like a lot. <laughs> yeah. how, how long will that take or what kind of is the process there? So the one of the virus that I'm working with, Somavirus, it has um, 171 genes. And the other one that I'm studying, um, Kaposi sarcoma herpes virus, has 89. So it sounds like a lot, but it's not, it's definitely not anywhere near as many as like humans. humans or yeah. <laughs> yeah. So it's definitely, it's manageable, but it is a lot of work because I have to clone each of those genes into a lentivirus vector that I can use to transduce my macrophages. So my macrophages will, will have the gene that encodes this virus protein. And yeah. So you're going to have to do that for about 200. Mm -hmm. yes. Wow, that's a lot. <laughs> yes. So, so let's say that one of them does kind of induce a response. What was the plan from there? Yeah, so I'm looking at two readouts of immune activation. The first one is cell death. So if it triggers cell death in the macrophages. And the second one is transcriptional immune responses. So I'm looking to see if these proteins might trigger an immune response that's mediated by cytokines or chemokines or maybe an immune-related surface molecule, um, any of that would be definitely of interest. So then if I get a hit from this, then the next steps would be trying to identify how the host is sensing the virus protein. So what is what does the pathway look like? And basically figuring out the mechanism of how that immune response is, is initiated. Nice. Are there any similar studies like this? So there's been a few and definitely some more in recent years. So there's been a number of examples of, of ways that um, animal immune systems can, can detect the activity of pathogens. And so one example of this is this protein called NLRP1 that forms something called an inflammasome. And so inflammasomes are these, um, can be formed from a number of, of different proteins that reside in, in the cytosol and can detect the presence of pathogens. And so when they get activated, they form, they oligomerize and form these high molecular weight complexes. And, and these complexes lead to the activation of downstream proteins that activate inflammatory cytokines and also poke holes in the in the cell membrane and cause this form of inflammatory cell death called pyroptosis. And so, so yeah, so it had been known for a while that NLRP1 can get activated by this particular pathogen encoded effector called lethal toxin, which is um, encoded by bacillus anthrax. And it was also known that NLRP1 has this autoproteolytic cleavage site in the protein and, and this site was was required for its activation. So basically, it cleaves itself, and then these two parts of the protein are held together. And 
So this was known, but it wasn't really understood how this protein got activated and like what the mechanism was. So what my lab um, figured out was that this lethal toxin cleaves the protein at the end terminus and that destabilizes the protein and causes it to get degraded by the proteasome. But when the proteasome reaches that autoproteolytic site where, where the protein had been cleaved, it stops. And so then the other portion of the protein that doesn't get degraded is actually the active part of the protein. And so this active part then oligomerizes and then activates the downstream proteins that mediate pyroptosis. Wow, that's a great name for a protein that does that lethal, what is it called? <laughs> lethal toxin. Yeah. Yeah. So it's cool. And then they also were able to show that another effector from a different pathogen also does a similar thing that leads to the proteasome-mediated degradation of this, this n terminus and activates NLRP1. And since then, so this was done with the mouse NLRP1 pro protein. And, and since then, there's actually been a paper, a couple of papers showing that human NLRP1 is also activated by um, pathogen-encoded proteins, but this time it's viral proteases. Oh, interesting. So it seems that perhaps a major function of this protein is, is to actually sense the presence of pathogen proteases, which yeah. is pretty interesting. Yeah. So you mentioned that you were conducting the screen on, I'm guessing, like a cell line. Is the plan yes. to move from cells to then like animal studies or what is kind of the plan for that? Yeah, so definitely it would be interesting to eventually move to test some of these things in mice. Mm -hmm. um, I think it gets kind of complicated because things that we might discover in the human system might not actually be applicable in the mouse system, especially right. like because of this one example of NLRP1, we know that like it can get the mouse one can recognize certain proteases and the human one recognizes different proteases. And this kind of makes sense because hosts and pathogens are in this um, this arms race all the time. And so these immune sensors are going to be ones that are constantly evolving pretty quickly compared to other um, proteins. And so may be less well conserved between animals and, and um, between mice and humans, for example. Right. Yeah, that makes sense. Which two pathogens are you looking at again? I'm looking at Myxomavirus, which is a pox virus that actually only infects rabbits. It doesn't infect oh, humans. interesting. <laughs> um, and then I'm also looking at Kaposi's sarcoma herpes virus. And so herpes viruses, it's actually sort of the opposite situation where they've evolved, co-evolved with humans for millions of years. So yeah, so we're doing this for a reason, actually. So viruses, they have faster generation times and they have higher mutation rates. And so that means that in this arms race with with hosts, they have an advantage because they can evolve more quickly than, than their host can. And so basically, if there was a virus and, and it had an effector protein that activated an immune response, this would be bad for the virus. And so they would want to, basically, any mutation that would prevent this immune response from being triggered would be selected for in the virus. And so, but so it's possible that, so in myxomavirus where, where they're infecting rabbits, this may happen, but since they don't, they're not actually infecting humans, that maybe the effector would still be able to trigger an immune response in humans because oh, they never had that selective pressure to evolve to not trigger that immune response in humans because they don't infect humans. So I think that that's one possibility. And then, then the other possibility is that, um, because humans are never really being infected with myxomavirus, the host might not evolve to sense the presence of the pathogen. And so that's the reason why we're looking at this other virus, KSHB, that's co-evolved with humans for millions of years, because in that case, the humans, the host, would any, any 
any way that they have evolved to sense the presence of the virus would would be beneficial to the host and then would be selected for. Right. So then you compare the two responses. Yeah, exactly. Nice. So so let's say that you do get a hit. Would you then I know that you have like a you know hundreds of genes and you let's say you end up with like 10 of them that actually do something. Would you then do you know of any protein domains that are associated with these kinds of proteins and what you should be looking for? So I'm not sure about specific domains. Do you mean like from the virus or from the host? Yeah, from the virus. So like when you, you know, have your list of genes that maybe did something, how could you narrow down your candidates to those that might be worth like the time it takes to like actually prove something? Yeah, exactly. So a lot of these virus proteins, their functions are kind of known a little bit, or at least, yeah, like kind of known. So I think there are certain ones that we know shut down immune responses. And so do various things to the host cell to to shut down host immune responses and like promote their own to establish a replicative niche. And so those ones would be kind of of particular interest if we found that they were also being sensed by the host immune response. So yeah, I think that those would probably be the first ones that, that I would follow up on. Nice. I hope you find some. <laughs> like, uh, is there a certain experiment that you're working on right now? Yeah, I'm mostly studying these days, but I actually just finished the screen. And so oh, I'm nice. getting RNA-seq data back soon. And then I'll be analyzing that and just seeing if anything came of it. Yeah. Nice. Has this kind of screen been done before? So not to my knowledge. I think there's definitely been a, a few examples of of this like um, immune responses that are triggered by pathogen activities but I think most of those were identified not really through a screen but more so just kind of like observations and more like hypothesis driven research so I don't think anyone has really like systematically looked for this. Nice so you're doing something brand new. Yeah. I was about to ask um, and I think you kind of just mentioned it how how is like the standard way of doing this? What do people actually do to find these genes if they're not looking at, you know, every single gene a virus has? Yeah, I think most of the previous examples have kind of just been based off of some of the known functions of these um, pathogen proteins and then just testing a hypothesis and, and just kind of like expressing one of these proteins and seeing if it, you know, can be sensed by the immune system rather than like systematically screening them, I think. Yeah. Right. I'm sure there are some kind of conserved sets of proteins across pathogens, maybe. Totally guessing because I know nothing about pathogens. But I guess if like some proteins had something in common with like the rest of the proteins that were in that same category, you could do like a like a sequence analysis and try to find stuff. Yeah. That definitely. is similar. I think that yeah, you can definitely do that. I think because pathogens do evolve so rapidly a lot of times it's hard to find sequence based homology oh, okay um but I, it's definitely possible um and then also just kind of because a lot of pathogens do have like these common goals they often attack the same host pathways and so even like totally diverse proteins that really have no sequence homology might actually end up doing the same thing. That's a really good point. Yeah, I guess like how, how is it that, you know, humans are able to recognize different, like such totally different types of viruses and like react in the exact same way? Yeah, so I think that that probably has to do with the other mode of pathogen sensing that I was, I was talking about where 
a lot of these pathogens have these really conserved microbial or these yeah microbial um, features mm-hmm. or, or molecules that can be sensed by the immune system. So for example, if you're looking at double-stranded DNA viruses, which is like the two viruses that I'm studying are, are have double-stranded DNA in genomes, a lot of, of those viruses can be t- detected by this immune sensor called CGAS that recognizes their genome. So it actually recognizes double-stranded DNA and then that initiates um, an immune response. Got it. But this is different from the effector-triggered immunity. Yeah, effector-triggered immunity, I would say, is definitely a little bit more specific to certain pathogens because basically they were sensing the activity of a certain protein and not all pathogens would have that protein. But it is definitely possible because as I like kind of was mentioning that a lot of these pathogens are sort of targeting the same host cellular processes. And so if you have an immune system that's guarding a certain host cellular process, so for example, like a lot of pathogens especially bacterial pathogens, will manipulate the cytoskeleton in cells. And so we actually have this immune sensor called pyrin that guards the cytoskeleton. And so if a pathogen perturbs the cytoskeleton, this can be sensed by pyrin and it triggers it to form an inflammasome and immediate pyroptosis. And so by, by guarding these certain pathways that are commonly targeted by pathogens, you can actually sense multiple diverse pathogens with a single sensor. So so you mentioned this kind of like arms race earlier and I'm recalling from sophomore year of college <laughs> evolutionary biology class that there is an arms race, right? Like the pathogens will evolve in response to, and I've always thought about in like the plant evolving, but I guess the human here, how would that happen in effector triggered immunity? Because the plant, or <laughs> sorry, the human um, is is really guarding, you know, a process. So how does the pathogen then evolve beyond that? Yeah, so like if the pathogen was triggering some immune response with an effector, um, if there was a mutation in that viral effector that prevented it from being sensed by the immune system, then that would definitely be selected for. Okay. Um, But I think that, for example, like these, I was talking about how NLRP1 senses proteases, these proteases are really important to the virus and are fairly evolutionarily constrained. And so if they, so a lot of mutations would actually prevent this protease from doing its job and the virus really can't survive. And so that's kind of a good thing from the host perspective yeah. to be sensing because it's, it's limited in its ability to evolve. But I will say that in that case, what a virus could potentially do is another effector that maybe is less constrained may evolve to shut down the immune response at a different point. So sort of downstream shutting down that immune response. And we see that happening a lot actually. And so I think that potentially this is happening a lot and maybe that's why very few examples of this effector triggered immunity have been identified thus far. And so I think that that's also another advantage of the screen I'm doing is that we're expressing individual effectors. Um, so you have one effector that triggers a response, but then another effector that shuts it off. Here, we'd be able to actually detect that response because we don't have the other protein there to shut it off. Oh, nice. Is it ever the case that it's not just one, and you? I guess you kind of just said this, but is it ever the case that it's like a group of proteins required to trigger this response? And how does your screen kind of like account for that? Yeah, I think that that's definitely possible. And that's something that we wouldn't be able to detect in our screen. 
I can't think of any examples off the top of my head mm-hmm. where that's already known, but I think that that is definitely a possibility. Yeah. So on the host side, is it sort of the same immune response that occurs in response to different pathogens or is it different or in some kind of way specific to what type of pathogen it is? Yeah. So definitely there can be different host responses depending on the pathogen. So for example, viruses can be sensed by that protein I was talking about Sea gas, and then addition, additionally, also can be sensed by various other um, host sensors, and oftentimes that leads to the induction of this particular immune response called a type one interferon response. And so, what happens there is these this infected cell starts making these proteins called interferons, which are really potent antiviral proteins, and they can signal back on that same infected cell, and then also on other cells nearby in the area, and then that turns on transcription of a bunch of genes that kind of put the cell in this antiviral state and kind of protects the cell against viruses. And then there are also other immune responses. A lot of it is mediated by this particular transcription factor called NF-kappa-B that are um, maybe a little bit more appropriate for a bacterial infection and can initiate responses that can can provide defense against bacteria. But I would say it's not totally black and white, like one is for viruses and one is for bacteria, but there's definitely, yeah, differences. Right. So what is your main hope for this project? Yeah, the most exciting thing would be to discover a new immune sensing pathway. I think that that would be super cool. I don't know if that will happen, (laughs) but I think the like major advantage of the approach I'm using is that it's really unbiased and so there's a great potential for discovering something totally novel I think that would be really exciting but for now I'm just hoping to get any hit (laughs) uh, so that I have something to work on uh, in the book and direction to my project but um, yeah we'll see. Have you always been interested in immunology? Definitely for the past few years, I would say. But initially, um, when I first started doing research, I was in a cancer biology lab. And so that was sort of my first introduction to research. And then I did a summer internship at Novartis where I worked with CAR T cells. And that kind of got me introduced to the field of immunology. But it wasn't until I got to Berkeley and started rotating in some labs that I decided that I, I wanted to study post-pathogen interactions and, and the, specifically the innate immune system. Nice. Where did you go for your undergrad? I went to Cornell. Is that where you did the cancer biology research? Yeah. Yeah. I joined a lab there um, my sophomore year, the Weiss lab, and then I worked there for three years. Do you want to talk a little bit about that project? I know it's probably been a while. <laughs> so I was working on a project that studied this protein called sirtuin 5 And so sirtuin 5 is this protein that's in the mitochondria and it has some roles in metabolism. Basically, it, it catalyzes a post-translational modification on proteins. And so by catalyzing this post-translational modification, it can, can affect the activity of other proteins in the mitochondria. And so we were specifically interested in the role of this protein in breast cancer. And so we had some mouse models where these mice would would develop breast cancer and we knocked out sirtuin 5 in these mice and then saw that these mice, when they didn't have sirtuin 5, they actually had smaller tumors and less metastases in their lungs. So I was just kind of working on trying to figure out why this was happening and, and what sirtuin 5 was doing that was promoting cancer. Wow, that's like a really 
interesting result. <laughs> yeah. 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 There's definitely people in the lab still working on it now. And we we published a paper just like a few months ago. So that was pretty oh, exciting. Awesome. Yeah. Congrats. Were you always interested in research? I was definitely always interested in science. Like I really liked all my science classes in high school and I thought it was definitely something that I wanted to pursue going forward and I knew that I had known that kind of um doing going to graduate school and pursuing a PhD was definitely an option but I knew that to do that I would have to see if I liked research first because I knew that that was a big component of going to grad school so yeah so I figured I would just give it a try and see if I liked it and I definitely it wasn't quite everything it wasn't what I expected but <laughs> yeah. I definitely really liked it and I like working through problems and and thinking about mechanisms of how things can work so I definitely enjoyed that and have stuck with it <laughs> nice so what else are you involved in on campus so this isn't really through the university but I am a mentor for 1000 girls 1000 futures which is on this program that where high school girls from all over the world actually can participate in it and they work through various modules that kind of teach them about science and, and doing research and they also so I mentor girls through that and we do like meetings over zoom and just kind of talk about different careers and, and how they can go about learning more about science and pursuing their interests. Wow that's so neat. So they're they're just in high school and this is like maybe like an after school kind of activity for them? Yeah, so so yeah, they're all in high school and they're all girls interested in in STEM. And it's kind of like a go at your own pace sort of thing. So they basically just have these different modules and they have like like a couple of months to do each module and so they can kind of work on it after school or whenever they really have free time and And the modules are teaching them about science careers or like more like basic science? It's kind of like different components of doing research and it's a little bit less focused on, they're not so much learning facts about science, it's more about like establishing good like mentor-mentee relationships mm -hmm. and thinking critically about things. And That's great, that's like skills. all like really important stuff. I wish I had that in high school. Yeah, yeah and it's cool to see these girls who are just like already so excited about science and I feel like definitely inspiring and I think it will be awesome to see them like going forward like I know a lot of them are currently applying to college now and so I'm, like, oh, nice. finding out like one of I was talking to one girl who was hoping to come to Berkeley actually which was pretty cool yeah that must be very rewarding <laughs> yeah what do you envision yourself doing after you graduate I'm definitely not sure yet still have a few more years right you have so much time <laughs> But I do really enjoy teaching and mentoring, and so I think I might consider a career in academia, but I also am very open to the idea of, of working for biotech. Uh, we'll see. Nice. Have you done any teaching so far? Uh, yes. So I taught this past fall. I was geosciencing for a molecular immunology course. Was that during um, like online teaching, and how did that go? Oh, yeah. So it was over Zoom, which is definitely interesting, but I think that it worked out pretty well. People definitely, I was surprised how much people participated for the most part. And yeah, I thought it, it was definitely a good experience and I learned a lot from it. That's nice that you got a lot of participation, I feel like, because I, I also taught that semester and I feel like participation was very low. Was that an upper level course? Yeah, yeah, I think that that was probably why, because it was like mostly 
juniors and seniors and they were definitely all very interested in immunology and I think of course there's like this extra level of interest given the pandemic and people want to learn about the virus and like our host immune response to it and kind of how vaccines work and I think that that was all super relevant. Wow yeah I didn't even think about that that <laughs> you were teaching immunology <laughs> during COVID. <laughs> yeah <laughs> yeah I bet you got a lot of questions. Nice. I also I'm a part of a couple of programs that work with college-age students who are applying to graduate school and basically just kind of help them through the graduate school application process. And so that was more, I was working on that more in the fall during the application process and kind of just like reading over statements and looking at resumes and also conducting some mock interviews and that sort of thing. Ooh, that's fun. Mock interviews. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Great. Well, thanks so much for answering all my questions. <laughs> so we're getting towards the end of our time here, and I'd just like to ask, is there anything that you'd like to leave the audience with today? I guess I would leave the audience with just the idea that their immune system is awesome and super powerful and is constantly defending them against tons of infectious agents that are constantly surrounding us and, and challenging us, and our immune system is defending us without us even knowing it and I would also urge everyone to go and get their vaccine when it's available to them um, and to, to trust the science and know that this is something that virologists and immunologists have been studying and working on for for a long time and so definitely trust the science and, and get your vaccine. That's a great message. <laughs> Yeah, I guess it's like just crazy to think about all the stuff that's happening in your body without you knowing it. So everybody love their immune systems today <laughs> for the rest of the week until our, our next show. And thanks so much for being on the show with us today, Bruno. Thanks for having me. Of course. And you've been listening to The Graduates, an interview talk show where we speak to UC Berkeley graduate students about their work on campus and beyond. We spoke to Brenda Remick today from the Department of Molecular and Cellular Biology. Please tune in next time. 